This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor, senior economist to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views or guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a really interesting show talking about the macro, the economy, the markets and, and commodities. Uh, we have a, a return guest in front of the program, Warren Pies, joining with my colleague, Nitesh Shah, Global Head of uh, Macro and Commodities out of London. Um, but before we get to them, uh, Professor Steve, we're going to get your comments. We got inflation again, uh, came in on the good side, uh, a little bit under expectations. Get love to get your view on, on the, the data that you're seeing this week. Yeah, I know. On the inflation, uh, you know, it's great news. And both of the PPI and the CPI came in uh, below expectations. Again, you know, we had shelter up four tenths. And, you know, we know about the, the, the shelter lag. Uh, we had, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, this morning we had uh, import prices and export price also coming in below expectations. So the price, price front has been great. Um, certainly what has surprised me. Um, and I think surprised everyone, even the, the Fed, is how strong the real economy remains. I mean, uh, you know, just I mean, and that initial jobless claims, which we, you know, uh, and I consider the canary in the, go- in the coal mine for weakness, uh, uh, certainly is not showing it dropped uh, um, uh, down to 237,000. From 250,000 expected uh, today, we had a, you know also a very very strong uh, beat on uh, University of Michigan uh, consumer sentiment um, on both current conditions and and all the rest. Um, now, now you some people are pointing to the a uh, little bit of an increase in inflationary expectations on the University of Michigan. I wouldn't worry about that. That was taken before. Uh, the the PPI and CPI came out, which actually it's low numbers. We have we have a year over year of three percent and under five percent for core. That actually made the major headlines of many of the major newspapers and other media. So uh, you know this this was taken before that. So um, uh, uh, I, I'm not I'm 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 showing you know not concerned about that uptick in um, in the inflationary expectations. Um, Oh, well, it's, it, I think it's basically a slam dunk for 25 basis points um, coming up. Uh, there's only going to be, I mean, there's going to be one more initial claims. There's going to be no more significant price uh, data uh, between now and the meeting. So, uh, you know, I doubt that there'll be anything that will defer them. Um, uh, uh, we should mention, by the way, um, the uh, unexpected um, uh, retirement of Fred Bullard, um, uh, Jim Bullard, uh, the president of Federal Reserve Bank of, of uh, St. Louis. As you know, Jeremy, we've had him on our show how many times? Four, five, six times? Maybe more. Uh, he's been one of our most maybe frequent more. Fed I mean, he's been he's been he's been he's been great on our show. Um, uh, uh, you know, let, let me say a couple couple things about him. Certainly, it takes out a very hawkish voice. He was not a voting member, but a very hawkish voice. Now, uh, is is you know, Waller, his associate and mentor at uh, the uh, St. Louis Fed, who is now a, a board member, is is uh, sort of taking some of uh, board's hawkishness. Uh, with him and will be voting, of course, as all board members are always voting. Loretta Mester, of course, is still a very strong hawk. She's not a voting member this year. Um, so but one strong voice has has gone uh, down on that. However, I don't think that's going to change the outcome. May in the future, um, but uh, it has not changed the outcome. I, I do want to mention a couple things, uh, you know, in retrospect, since he's not on the board anymore after, I guess, was 16 or 17 years um, Jim Board 
I think did the right thing. He said, I refuse to give long run predictions on Fed funds because I think the real rate has changed. He was one of the first people to talk about that. Uh, really an insightful uh, view of of, uh, of 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 you know the trend of interest rates. I also do want to view the, the the paradoxical view of him telling us many times uh, after the financial crisis that he would not let the Fed invert the yield curve again. And of course, it's extremely inverted. And of course, by wanting more increases, he wants to make it more inverted. So uh, in a way that always puzzled me, I don't know what changed his mind. Uh, he was very strong on that condition. Uh, nonetheless, he's, he's a very, a very bright man um, and uh, an innovative man. And um, um, he, he certainly, his voice will be lost um, at the Fed. As a result, um, there, there, there are some voting members that I know have more dovish Will, will they be convinced by Powell for the quarter point increase? Um, uh, my feeling is yes, unless we get some really bad news in the next week and a half. Um, uh, it probably is going to be unanimous again. But uh, if we didn't have that strong data on the uh, jobless claims, we could have had a dissent uh, coming up. Let's go to the markets. The markets are, uh, you know, make the trend your friend. I mean, that. You know, I, I say that a long time, I and mean, we really got just, um, you know, the the market thinks the Fed is, uh, you know, stuck a, 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 a it's perfect landing, uh, soft landing scenarios. Everyone is raising their probability, um, uh, saying the Fed maybe not over tightened again. I'm caught. I do not think they should raise it. However, uh, you know, I can certainly understand those that do. Well, one also has to realize there's been some moderation in the tightness uh, of so many of the indicators. We've had the dollar come off. We've had commodities stabilize. Uh, oil actually tend upward. Um, the uh, uh, Bloomberg uh, um, Commodity Index has uh, looked like it bottomed. We're not talking about sharp increases. Uh, we, we've also talked about Case Shiller, which will come out again just after the Fed meeting and the unexpected increase that we got last month. Now, again, these increases I sort of uh, regard as as uh, as rebounds off of big lows, not necessarily the start of inflationary trends. We did have an increase in the money supply last month. Um, you know, we'll get that in a couple weeks again as deposits have stabilized. So in a way, we have a that kind of a, uh, financial conditions have indeed eased despite the rise of interest rates. Um, however, you know, my feeling is if, you know, he's going to go, go, go put five, Fed funds upper limit 550 with talk of 575, um, in a, in a, you know, uh, that's those are pretty high real rates, um, uh, you know, on the economy that is not yet growing that fast. So, again, when everyone returns from all their vacations, um when we have a big, big bull market and then in the summer, everyone comes back from their vacations, the credit card bills come due, the tuitions come due, consumers begin to say, well, you know, should I cut back or not? We may have to wait till then. But in the meantime, you know, you see very little weakness on the stock market. The money is flowing in. I think the FOMO is there for all the institutions who were so bearish. Um, again, I wasn't that bearish, but more cautious, still calling for an increase this year. But certainly now we're now towards the 20% on the S&P. Again, we have a bifurcated market. We have NASDAQ at 30, tech at 30, 35 times earnings. We have the value stocks, cyclical stocks still at 15 times earnings. So there is that, uh, that uh, bifurcation in the market, but there seems to be money now flowing from all sources back into the market. So, uh, you know, I think the, the, the path of least resistance at least in the near term, is upward. And uh, we're, we're just starting earnings season. Anything you're looking for in particular as we go through this earnings season? Banks were good so far. Delta was good so far. We're only beginning. Um, uh, looks like the beats look fairly decent at a, at the very, very beginning. I haven't heard warnings yet, uh, you know, about trouble brewing in the third quarter. Which is a uh, is a good sign. Um, again, uh, we'll have to wait a little bit more to see um, 
to see what comes out. But at this particular juncture, uh, oh, you know, it, you know, the, we're making those uh, earnings projections, which many at the beginning of the year thought were far too high. Now, whether we make 2024 or not, <laughs> again, uh, that doesn't start for another six months, but um, and they're holding in at least. 2024 earnings are basically holding at the level of three months, unusual, because normally we get them in a downtrend, but they've been generally holding, I think, with the better economic news and lower fear of recession. Uh, uh, we uh, Analysts have not yet cut they're 2024. Now, they, they're always a little optimistic, to be sure, but not wildly optimistic, certainly if we, uh, if we don't have a recession. When the professor is doing his part to support the consumer economy, you're making a trip over to Europe, professor, want to tease out where you're going? Yeah, we're going to Barcelona and then a cruise from Barcelona to Lisbon. We're going to be staying in Barcelona for three nights and then Lisbon for two nights. Um, unfortunately, I think it was one of those nights will be the meeting, but I'll try to catch it. It's happened before. Um, but, uh, yeah, so in, in some sense, uh, am I supporting abroad? I will be spending some abroad, uh, but the cruise line is American. So <laughs> to that extent, we're, we're supporting, uh, uh, American exports. Again, I would say, um, you know, uh, the, the canary in the gold mine on the real is initial claims, no problem yet. Canary in the um, coal mine for prices is uh, all the commodity index, which have stabilized and are beginning to creep up. I'm not saying it's a new trend and they could go down with some weaker economic news. But those are two things that uh, are forward looking that I look at to sort of judge the stance of monetary policy. And at this particular point, at least the monetary policy does not certainly seem as tight and fearful as it did at the beginning of the year. Well, Professor, enjoy your vacation. We'll try to get some uh, check up with you. And uh, yeah, we'll see if we can get connected or not, depending on time lags and uh, and Internet. <laughs> but uh, good have a good time and we will talk. We'll connect at a minimum when you get back. Thank you. Thanks, Professor. We're going to touch on all those issues uh, that the professor just talked about for inflation, for commodities. We have two great guests, Warren Pies, founder from 314 Research, a friend of the program. Uh, we're one of Warren's clients at 314. A lot of really interesting uh, commentary that you produce every week. We have Nitesh Shah, who is head of macroeconomics and commodity research for Wisdom Tree, based in London. Warren, you, you know, in terms of this view on the commodity prices, well, any any comments about what you heard from the professor to kick us off, where you see the trending commodities? I know you've got a, a number of models that I want to drill into on oil and gold and some other things, but what's your baseline view of what you heard on the economy on inflation? Yeah, I'm always good to come back to the program. So I uh, appreciate the conversation and definitely appreciate hearing the professor's thoughts. I think that from a big picture, there's so many places we could go. Uh, to me, the big picture, when I look at a lot of times at this time of the year, I like to go back and see what were we saying last year. It's almost like a trade journal for me to say, wait, where were, what was your mind at you know, 12 months ago? And 12 months ago, we wrote a report saying we thought that a two handle on the CPI was, uh, was more likely than not in the next 12 months. And we basically focused on you know a few supply factors, and that was way out of consensus. I remember going on a television program and talking about it, and they were kind of beside themselves. This is when CPI was at nine percent. So here we are at three percent. We didn't quite get the two handle yet. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. But the the whole point of that exercise was to open our minds and think about where could we be, where could the consensus be wrong. And obviously, a lot of the consensus has shifted at this point in time. And I thought it was interesting to have um, the professor really start looking at the, the earnings season. To me, that's the next shoe to drop. I know that's not where you want to go with the commodity stuff, and we can, we can go back to commodities. But that's my big picture concern is, is earnings. If you look at earnings as we went through last year, forward earnings, were marked down. So 2020 during the Q2 reporting season of 2022, if you go through, that's when you saw 2023 earnings take a big hit. And then we went into Q3 earnings season and we took another stair step lower in 2023 uh, earnings. 
I'm looking for that pattern this year. I'm wondering if we'll get that. And the weak point is not the recession. We're going to, we can obviously talk about our views on the economy. And I think that all the data points have shown this economy is much more resilient than the consensus expects. And I think that has fed a positioning shift that might be almost unprecedented this year and is why we've seen the rally. But to me, it's not the top line, which you would associate with the recession that we have to worry about next year. It's margin contraction. So 2024 earnings, which is about a 9% growth rate from where we're at right now, uh, is year over year, is baking in uh, all-time high margin margins. We're, we're baking in 140 basis point margin expansion over the pre-COVID peak. And that's in the face of wage pressures that are still growing. If you think about 70% of S&P 500 costs are wages, and wages are still growing, and they're the kind of last piece of that inflationary impulse. And then you have um, interest expense, which we, we've been digging into interest expense. Uh, and so there's there's a number of, I'd say, margin headwinds in just a 100 basis point reduction in margins. You don't have to have a catastrophe. Remember, we're 140 basis points above the pre-COVID peak. Just 100 basis point reduction in margins at this point would lower your 2024 earnings by 20 bucks a share from like 241 to about 222. So that's a meaningful decrease. As we go through these windows of earnings seasons, that's what I'm going to look at because I think that we're we're bordering on the excess optimism at this point in time. And so just like we looked at the con the consensus view on inflation last year, we're looking this year and saying where could the consensus be wrong? If it's going to be wrong, it's probably going to be that uh margins are are too high for 2024. And of course, oil and commodities, as we can talk about, also can feed into the margin story. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for the earnings outlook later this year. I, I have a feeling, well, I, I did some research earlier this year that the dollar has been one of the key factors that can drive earnings growth. And I think, you know, we have earnings declining right now. Part of it's oil, uh, right? You know, the year over year numbers in the energy sector are down like 50% for energy earnings. But, you know, the dollar can be a, a it was a headwind for last earnings season. I think it's gonna become a tailwind next quarter. Uh, we'll see how it shows up this quarter. But that, that'll be one interesting you here's your take of that but in in terms of the is there sectors you know you hear things like meta this is the year of efficiency you know and <laughs> maybe nobody representing the ai boom in year of efficiency more than meta this year but they is, is will ai have a benefit of will, will that be one of the things that shows up is productivity enhancers and and companies be able to do more with less is that something you see possible probably over the long term in um you know, my business partner, Fernando, who is uh, his background is machine learning and AI. So, uh, you know, it, that's really his his topic. And he'll be writing a big report in August about that for our clients. And I think he's a, he's a true believer for sure. But there's time frames at play here. And, and I think the efficiency gains from the AI boom are not going to be come in time to save the 2024 earnings picture, which is what we're we're looking at. And, uh, you know, and I think that even if we get fully, if 2000, we're, we're at a point in the markets now where even if we get 2024 earnings, 100% of them, markets trading at 19 times 2024 earnings. So um, it's not exactly that. I think the market's getting to a point where, and maybe that weak dollar tailwind is going to be, is going to show up. You know, that's something to monitor. I, I remember you putting that, that research out. It was great. And if that's uh, that there, we're going to need that. I think the market's going to need that. The equity market's going to need that to justify the move that we've seen. And if we're going to hit all time highs by the, the end of this year, as you're kind of starting to hear the, the, the chorus of analysts suggest, then you're going to need those earnings to come in higher than they they're penciled in for 2024. But I don't I don't see uh, AI being a, a margin expander at this point yet down the road. Yes. If anything, it's going to be capex uh let's say the ai story is, is real and that nvidia you know 40 times sales i think is it's it's 100 baking in a real trend and there is going to be a capex spending spree where do the where does that capital spending come from is it can you is there a lot of uh borrowing opportunities uh in the banking system right now for that and in, in the capital markets maybe maybe not i i'd say probably not so 
Maybe that comes from buybacks, maybe less money diverted from buybacks into capital spending, which again is not, it's not a margin, it's not a positive margin thing or a, a positive uh, near-term equity fundamental story. It doesn't mean it's not positive long-term. I think it's, you gotta have a, a exposure to it. Our sector model is overweight tech and has been since March. And we just have to, we're really riding the trends there. And so it's it's one of those things where uh, it's a long, it's a time frame mismatch at this point on margins. Let's talk a little bit before we come back to the commodity part. Let, let's talk a little bit more about your economic views. You, you've written a little bit about what are the factors that have caused you to push back your recession calls towards uh, sort of Q1 next year or or the, the signposts of what you're going to be watching. Well, how are you looking at the economy uh, and, and what are the key sectors for the economy, economic growth rates? Yeah, so I'm going to give a little bit of a um, a background, like a one minute background on how we got here. And this is like it was something that when you hear podcasts, it kind of annoys me when analysts go back and explain how right they were. And then that's like the preamble to allow them to say, hey, I've been wrong here. And so that's what I'm going to do, though, for a, a minute is to say that uh, we came into the year and we did notice this consensus of first half recession second half rebound and it was everywhere every major sell side shop you know if you look at a percentage of forecasters uh predicting a recession the next 12 months was off the charts we had charts like that and we we looked at the fiscal side we've been very much like we see these soft data the pmis and all the, the survey data and things like that which have pointed to a recession all the way going back to middle of the year last year. And then we have the the spending data, the fiscal impulse that came through COVID. And we've been extremely, um, we've been, ex- we've, we have to give a wide berth to that. So our view was that we saw a second half 2023, a late in the year recession. And we thought that we were being clever and out of consensus with that view that the cycle was gonna be longer than the consensus expected. But as we've come into the year and seen the data evolve, the economy is much stronger than even we expected. And this cycle is going to elongate even more than we had thought it was going to. So we, we've put our, pushed our recession call back into the middle of next year. And really, we work through a housing framework. We think that housing is a very important segment of the economy and it's a leading indicator. So if you see the economy going into a recession, if you think that's gonna happen, really you had no fiscal drag. So this is gonna come from interest rate policy and where does interest rate policy first show up? It shows up in the housing uh, sector, really traditionally. And so we, we historically leading into a recession, you see an eight to 10% decline in residential construction payrolls and this is what we've been watching and waiting to see these payrolls decline in every payrolls report we've seen a little and i mean very moderate uh decline like a few thousand total jobs but nothing meaningful over the last four or five months that that residential residential construction industry has shed but resilience across the board is what we've seen uh and so that has caused us, we, we map out housing starts, how long it takes to finish a home, the mix of single family and multifamily. We take all this and we model it out and we say, what is the level of housing activity point to for that drawdown in residential construction payrolls? And it was pointing to the end of 2023 as we came into the year and the data has just been too resilient. The housing market specifically has been too resilient. And so now we're looking at the middle of next year before we could possibly see those residential construction payrolls decline. The caveat to that, and I think the very the really interesting um, data point that's keeping us on our toes is we saw new starts had been trending down and in, into a contractionary uh, uh, path before the last uh, the last uh, report from that the housing market report. And then we saw a rebound in single family construction and multifamily construction. Single family houses over 80,000 units started uh, last month and then multifamily over 50,000. Those numbers, if that's not just a blip on the radar screen, they are not contractionary. Those numbers don't point to the economy contracting the residential uh, construction payroll market contracting. So to me, 
the one area of the economy where it really impacts the wealth effect, consumer spending, all those things is the housing market. And we need to see um, that activity slow meaningfully if we're going to hit the, the target that we've laid out even, to be quite honest. And so that's what, that's what we're watching. That's our framework. I think when you predict a re recession, you have to have a framework versus just a point in time prediction because you need flexibility. The economy is so dynamic in the world we're living in with seven, eight percent uh, U.S. government deficits outside of a recession, you have to give yourself a wide berth for being wrong on predicting the economy. Well, well the, very interesting conversation. I think that is one of the most surprising things about these higher rates. You say, like, why haven't these higher rates crimped the economic growth? And housing, you know, where the cost, where home prices are up 30, 40 percent from, you know, pre-pandemic, and now you got mortgage costs, how much they're up, like, why haven't housing prices declined more is a really interesting question. And that, you know, your point on just the, this is an interesting point of how resilient consumers have been in, in housing. So a very, very interesting dynamic. Let me pull in Nitesh for just one second. Nitesh, as, before we take a break for this first half, any views on what you've heard so far, the economy, interest rates, uh, your, your take on any, anything you've heard from Warren? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, leaning off uh, both uh, Jeremy and uh, Warren's comments, I think uh, the softer CPI print uh, earlier this week has allowed for, you know, expectations of, you know, uh, you know, less uh, rate hikes from from the Fed, and that's been nice for commodities. So that's allowed commodities to jump up a little bit uh, this week. Uh, but and more broadly, commodities have been largely in a sideways pattern for a while. I mean, yes, they've been declining um, relative to where they were last year, but a lot of sideways movement, and that's because. I don't think the economy has got a really strong direction at this point in time. It's neither we're falling into recession, nor are we in a deep in a deep signals of recession, nor are there deep signals that um, uh, the, the central banks are, are willing to do a sharp turnaround. So for right now, I think a lot of commodities have gone sideways. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to talk maybe after your break with Warren about how your um, signals in your models have actually gone a bit more bullish. Um, I think that's uh, is, is, is good to explore what, what, is, what is changing at this point in time. As the professor was saying, commodities are one of those forward-looking indicators and energy prices in particular. Give us your a little bit on, on how you look at commodity prices and, and oil in particular. Yeah, so um, one of our calls coming into the year was that, the, as I said, the economy be more, be more resilient than the consensus expected, which gives a runway for, for crude oil. This is just kind of before we get into the, the model and the quantitative stuff, what's the framework? And so as we've seen the data actually come in stronger and in some cases reaccelerate, it gives us more confidence that there's a runway for crude oil to actually get into gear. The big picture dynamics entering the year were still uh, Russia, or Russia supply continues to beat all reasonable estimates, which we were, I was wrong about our model, did a good job last year, but not so much my personal thoughts. And then China continual perpetual stopping and starting of its economy, we thought that we were uh, we were going to get a demand increase out of China, and you know there's potential downside to supply from Russia, and that uh, obviously OPEC could walk back some of the increases in production they've had. So that's all come to pass. Uh, that's all come to pass this year, and what I think has happened is you saw, and this is what we've seen in the market, is oil has gotten caught up in a in the recession trade. So speculators have really piled on going into the year as China didn't really materialize as a huge reopening demand shock to the market. We saw hedge funds and CTAs start to pile on to crude oil shorts. And I think this is kind of an expression of the recession trade and a kind of a microcosm of what happened in markets is everybody's position for a recession. And you've had to unwind those trades one by one. So bonds sold off early in the year. We've had a chase as January was a 7% increase in S&P 500. All these, these are all uh, unwinds of the recession trade. And so my view is that we're going to see an unwind of the recession trade in oil. It just needs fundamental support. And so in March, OPEC announced their cuts late March into April. We sparked that first short covering rally from $72 on Brent up to 88. 
And those OPEC cuts really didn't materialize. So Russia continues to say they're going to cut and they don't. Um, we've seen Iranian oil come back in the market. You've seen SPR continue to get released. And we've seen China basically uh, underwhelm on their reopening. So all these factors have basically said it's safe to come back and short oil. And then until recently, we've seen another round of shorts layering on in the crude oil market. And that led Saudi Arabia in particular to come in and say, enough of this. We don't want this level of short interest in the market. We're going to cut production until you get massive draws. And we're going to force you out of your short positions. And that starts this month in July. And I believe that's the, the setup for crude oil. And the, the, really the question of how far this rally goes is about fundamental follow through. Can the Saudis uh, really move those shorts out? I mean, if uh, we could easily get back to that $90 barrel level, but for that to be sustained, we need to see true fundamental improvement. So that's the setup that I see though, as we came into the year and now as we enter the summer. Let me let me follow up on that. And Nitesh, a quick, you know, one of his comments was on China. I know that's one of the topics you and I were chatting on. It, what, what's your view on what's happening in China and the the sort of disappointment in their reopening that we've seen yeah i mean you know we had that reopening at the beginning of the well, uh, at the tail end of last year uh, there's lots of expectations about what that would do to demand and it's largely disappointed and part of that disappointment is just the fact that the rest of the world is hasn't had as strong growth for chinese exports um and therefore um you know hasn't helped propel China, but neither is China providing any stimulus um, attached to that reopening as well. Um, I think, you know, the it is mounting pressure at this point in time for more stimulus. Um, and there has been lots of, I would say, slightly micro announcements, you know, a few easing of uh, rates, especially those uh, that they can help uh, unlodge the uh, real estate sector. We've had the um, subsidies that were provided for electric vehicles, which came to an end at the, uh, at the end of uh, 2022. They've come back in again, but there's no big bazooka that's been offered. And I think the market is, uh, is, is placing a lot of pressure now on China to offer that because without that, um, China will, you know, will, growth will, will falter. But at the same time, I think that's where the headlines sit. If we look below um, those headlines, we can see that China is quite opportunistic opportunistically using this uh, market of weak prices to uh, accumulate uh, raw materials. Um, and we've seen China actually accelerate its expenditure on, uh, say, grid, expend uh, grid expenditure. So building out its you know, electrified uh, network, um, which is very much needed for the energy transition as it tries to migrate towards uh, lower sources of um, or energy sources with lower uh, carbon emissions. Um, so that was really beneficial for things like copper, because lots of copper is needed. Uh, but also, you know, outside of that, it's been accumulating quite a quite a lot of quite a lot of oil. Um, but the, the big question is, you know, can China continue to do this? Um, the International Energy Agency um, is, is looking for uh, 2.2 million barrels of oil demand growth this year. And if you look at the detail of uh, where that demand growth is coming from, 70% is coming from China. So if China doesn't deliver on that, then I guess you know we have a a, a big uh, you know uh, you know letdown on on the on on those uh, uh, numbers from for, for oil demand, um, and obviously that will start to unwind things. And I don't know, uh, Warren, if you, if you have a take on this, but I can see you know yes, those shorts are looking extremely stretched and you know huge opportunity for a short covering rally. But the inventory data is still looking quite large, right? There's, there's lots of inventory around, and obviously, uh, spare capacity has been widening for the OPEC group as uh, you know, as Saudi Arabia in particular is cutting back. Um, I guess that takes away, I guess, some of the headroom for a big, uh, a, a bigger rally at towards this year. I don't know what what your take is on that. I think the spare capacity question is a a good or issue is a good one to raise as we talk about the durability of any bull market that forms because uh you know as a as the bull market forms you know based on emergency level cuts from saudi arabia you end up with the risk that that oil, that oil is going to come back and how's the market going to absorb it i think the saudis are and this will kind of highlight maybe a difference in how we look at the markets 
uh, from traditional sell side is that the Saudis are going are betting that based on their their understanding of uh, supply and demand balances, I think that the short uh, position that's in the market is not justified by the fundamentals and that the market will absorb their crude when it comes back in due time. And so that's, um, you know, it's not going to be this month. It's not going to be August and it's probably not even going to be September. So look for Q4 for some of that oil to come back. And so that's a, a week period. The um, so so that's how I think the Saudis are seen in, in how I think the, the current market's shaping up inventories. If you look at the U.S., I mean, uh, you know, there's spots if you look over in the Atlantic Basin, there's been a notorious kind of glut of crude oil over there. If you look in Asia, there's been some of a glut there. It's hard to exactly triangulate what's going on in China. But if you look in the United States, inventories are actually pretty low, especially when you rope in SPR inventories, combine them with commercial crude oil inventories, combine them with refined products. It just doesn't look like, in my opinion, a, a very bad inventory scenario. I think, you know, the the fundamentals don't justify the short positions from my view. Another way we look at that, as opposed to, I'd say, the just to say the two different ways you can build uh, an oil strategy. Number one is you create a supply and demand model. And so you create you bottoms up supply model, econometric demand model. You then you decide what is the gap between supply and demand, and from there you try to figure out the price that's going to incent that gap to close, pull oil out of storage, shift the curve into backwardation, all those things. So that is the traditional way to create a crude outlook, and I've never found that to be a convincing path. I, I mean, if you go and look at the history of Wall Street firms, what they do is they create these supply and demand outlooks, and then just come constantly have to adjust their assumptions because by the time they perfected this model and gone through all the areas of the world they they realized they missed something one of their assumptions is off i mean the oil market's so dynamic we just had an explosion in the gulf of mexico for mexican production which took 750,000 uh, barrels a day offline momentarily supposedly most of that's back but we're in a very tight sour crude market so you have to think about these types of things now we're seeing outages in uh in libya and other areas of the world so these things happen it's a dynamic market so what i prove pro would rather do than build this supply and demand model is to come up with a set of indicators that give me a real-time view on the health of the market so we create physical market indicators based off of differentials and term structure and things like that and then we put that in our model we have technicals and i think the way you look at the at the crude oil market technically is way different than how you look at equities there's not this long persistent trend you need to look for uptrends with pullbacks and things like that so we have our specific technical model positioning as we mentioned with hedge funds and ctas and then inventories and inventories we look at all total petroleum inventories and we focus on the us because it's the best high quality data and again my goal is to have real-time data that's not stale so those are our four ways when i look at that model like the, just to give you an example of something we're looking at right now would be crack spreads in Singapore. So gas oil cracks in Singapore have been hammered this year. And that's been a sign that there's physical market weakness. After we were at $60 a barrel on a crack spread in Singapore, we've gone to $18 a barrel just this year. And that tells me that told me that the China reopening has been a bit of a dud. So these Chinese refining complex basically front ran the reopening and they had too much refined product and they exported it out because prices and refined margins were too high in the region. They exported out onto that regional market and it's been a big overhang. So what I want to see to say, is this going to be more than just a short covering temporary rally? I want to see things like Singapore crack spreads get back above $20 a barrel, because if that happens, it tells me we won't see run cuts. We might not get the refining bonanza we had last year, but we will not have run cuts in the Asia Pacific region. So you won't have run cuts in Japan, you won't have run cuts in Singapore, and ultimately you won't have run cuts in China. And that's really what we're trying to get at. So that's more of how we do it. We we look at these things, these differentials, these what I would say key data points, and we triangulate what's happening in the market and let that be a real-time feedback to our model. At this moment, our model is bullish. Our model flipped bullish last week based on the positioning online, based on physical market indicators that we see improving. Inventories, as you said, it's still uh, bearish, but I think there's a it's more of a middle of the road picture there. And so those are the, and technicals are neutral right now on the model, but I would expect any bit of a pullback would trigger a buy signal on the model given 
what's uh, the input. So I think that's a good near term setup. And like I said, if, if we want to see this turn from a 70 to 90 temporary blip that the Saudis caused into a durable bull market and hit $100 later in the year, we need some fundamental follow through. So that's where the economic rubber hits the road. What do you see uh, as the drivers for gold? You talked about the, the, the input for a model on oil. How do you model gold and what's, what's that model say today? Yeah, gold's an um, enigma kind of asset. It's a little bit like modeling gold sometimes is like nailing a jellyfish to a wall. So there's a lot of, there. There's you go through regimes and what gold can seize on is different through each regime. We obviously always rely heavily on technicals because it, the price does kind of uh, rule everything at one, some point. I think gold is it's obviously running against, uh, it's, a, it's a counter trend to the dollar. A little surprised it hasn't been bid more this year as the dollar has weakened. Uh, but our view is that gold is gold is ultimately trading off of a uh, forward view to Fed policy. So uh, the best way to, to think about it is if you think go back to the 2018 cycle and gold really took off April 2018. The Fed paused December of 2018 and then started cutting in the middle of 2019. But gold was already rallying. I think gold is doing a similar thing here or trying to detect a similar pivot from the Fed here. And ultimately that's gonna flow through the to the dollar and then ultimately to gold. And so as the economic data has been stronger and the higher for longer narratives taken hold, we've seen gold kind of shift into neutral, but I think it is a, only a matter of time until this, we break out the new all time highs and uh, you know, we get that that next leg of the, of the rally. So our, our model is bullish and it's basically bullish across all components at this point in time. So. That's how that's how we see gold at the moment. Yeah, you do some modeling there too. What's what's your how do you build a model for gold? What's that say? Yeah, give you a bit of the background first. Uh, our model for gold prices it's an econometric model looking at various uh, uh, factors altogether. Um, they include um, bond yields. So as bond yields rise, tend to be bad for gold prices, uh, i.e. bond prices and gold prices tend to move in the same direction as they're both defensive assets. Um, inflation tends to be good for gold prices um, and the dollar exchange rate. So um, as dollar appreciates, that's bad for gold. And when it depreciates, it's good for gold. Um, and the last thing that we have in the model is some measurement of investor sentiment towards a metal. And what we use for that is uh, speculative positioning in gold futures. And um, we use that as a, uh, you know, a, a, a variable, you know, uh, that, that just is a temperature reading on uh, sentiment. It's not, we don't use it in a contrarian way at all. So as a spec length in gold rises, that tend to be good for gold prices in the same time period. So that's the, the sort of framework of our model. Um, and you know, in terms of what our model is reading, well, I need to inputs into all the sort of macro variables. And if I just simply take consensus uh, views on inflation, bond yields and uh, um, and, and the dollar, uh, we could get to a, a brand new all time high for gold prices by the middle of next year at two thousand two hundred twenty five. Um, and so what consensus if I, is, is you know looking for is still moderation of gold of inflation, which is not great for gold prices. But the fact that we're getting uh, dollar depreciation and uh, bond yields uh, moderating is good for for gold prices. In that forecast, I'm also moderating the spec length in, in gold as well, just to be conservative. Um, now, if I would be less conservative, we'll probably get a you know much higher uh, uh, increase in, in in gold prices. But the thing I can say for gold is that it's it, it can win in in in, in two major uh, you know views of the world. Um, if I'm wrong, and you know if the consensus is wrong, and we end up in a recession. Um, that's typically something that's good for gold prices, a very defensive asset. So gold prices could go up. Um, if we're wrong on that front, and you know, if we um, actually uh, see, you know, the, the Fed um, actually pivot earlier, uh, bring down rates uh, potentially earlier, that could also be very positive for for gold prices. So at, at two extremes, uh, you know, we could see gold prices um, and break out quite, quite higher. Just right where we are right now, because the economy's just been sort of middling along, we've had gold prices sort of range trading uh, and going sideways. Well, now you do some work. We we just talked about 
oil. We talked about gold. You have some very interesting asset allocation models that do things between stocks and bonds, but as alternatives. Maybe you could talk through what you call your real asset model and how it thinks about alternatives and how you think people should try to incorporate alternatives uh, or how you look at incorporating alternatives into a, a portfolio context. Sure. So the really the founding principle of 314 Research when we started the company is that the world is, is changing and, and really the, that COVID brought forward this change. Um, and it, it's, it's um, a change where we're reintroducing inflation into portfolios. We're changing the correlation between stocks and bonds. And you're going to need to change your investment approach. 60-40 is, you know, it's a cliche and 60-40 has done very well this year after doing horribly last year. But this has not been a good environment for 60-40 because the correlation between stocks and bonds has been positive again. Really, if you dig deep, you need to see that correlation stay negative in order to get the same diversification effects that we had over the last 25 years. And that's going away at this point in time. So the answer to that is you basically need to expand your asset menu. Our real asset allocation model has 20 assets, which includes fixed income, equities, foreign and domestic, and uh, alternatives, commodities, some Bitcoin, things like that, uh, REITs, real estate. So 20 asset classes, and you're gonna need to, I'd say rebalance more aggressively. So we, we rebalance every month and with 20 assets, and I, I think this is a great approach in this world going forward. I mean, you can see, um, right now, if you look at the stock market and the bond market, they are discounting totally different futures. So you need to have a framework to incorporate these two asset classes, because if one of these two assets is wrong, you could be really hurt on your 60-40 portfolio. The bond market is predicting, uh, is very pessimistic. It's uh, baking in a, an aggressive rate uh, cutting cycle, while the the stock market, obviously, like we talked about, has a pretty a uh, nice glide path to higher earnings. And so uh, inflation is the reason for this. Inflation is the reason why this uncertainty around inflation, despite the fact we had a reduction in CPI this last month, I think that it's not over and done with. We're running massive budget deficits and we've created basically a, a fiscal experiment here recently. And you really need to expand your asset menu, wait for to see where that kind of amoeba of liquidity goes to and allow this framework to to get you into that that correct asset versus being beholden to a 60-40 stock bond split. And that's what we do with our real asset bond. Well, you know, what do you think can serve as that diversifier to stocks and bonds? Uh, I, I think some of the, the sector positioning story is something I've grasped onto personally and, uh, and believe in it. Also one of the more interesting sectors from a value story today. But talk a little bit about both sectors and maybe other assets that you think are, are really good diversifiers there. No, I think obviously commodities and gold, we've split commodities into base metals and base metal miners and energy out in our model. Because what I see is a future where you have this kind of electrification demand fueled uh, commodity boom for metals as we kind of uh, build out the whole green transition. And and that's going to be demand driven and government driven. And then you have what I think is going to be a supply driven fits and starts secular bull market regime for oil and energy commodities. So it's important to, because these drivers are different, it's not just like China came online and is consuming every marginal commodity out there. This is a different environment we're entering. You need to split these things apart. So we've split out miners, we've split out energy, we include Bitcoin, we include gold. Uh, And I think that the number one diversifying tool in managed futures is out there, too. I think managed futures, we've done a lot of work on managed futures. We have replication strategies in-house that have done very well and uncorrelated. But the number one tool is you want to have a trend overlay, an intelligent trend overlay. We do overlay. We do this differently at 314 Research. It allows us to create stop losses in our positions. Like we always say, you build conviction through fundamentals, but you manage risk with price. And so that's built into our model. We progressively scale positions up and down based on linear regression trend uh, analysis. And then we actually mix volatility too. So I think all these things together, having new assets and new approaches is really the, the only way you're going to be able to survive in uh, in the next, say, 10, 15 years of asset management from our perspective. 
Now, so many of us are focused on the Fed. Siegel, you know, kicks off the show with a lot of commentary on the Fed inflation. Do you think we're overly focused on the Fed as we 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 try to wrap up our, our show here today? That's the thing I've been um, pushing myself to think through a little bit as, you know, we we've put out for years now after the COVID pandemic response, the checkable deposit chart, which is we had checkable deposit balances go from one trillion to five trillion. We we saw the total outstanding government debt all in with the CARES Act and everything else, like eight trillion dollar, which is like a 33 percent increase in the overall debt outstanding. We saw all this stuff happen. We've never seen it. Even going back to World War II, we've never seen it. And you have to potentially ask yourself if all of these Fed models, and I'm guilty of this myself, and I think, but everyone has to ask ourselves, are we in a different world now? Is the is the fiscal experiment that we're running so powerful that it overwhelms all of these monetary tools that the Fed has, or at least the monetary tools that they're relying on right now? And, and will they have to, will the Fed have to change its re- approach and response? Um, it's an open question, but I, I just think that when you look at, we, we've got a chart in our latest slide deck, which I think really sums it up. We look at government deficit as a percentage of GDP. We're basically off the charts when outside of recessions right now. And then we look at commercial loan growth for the entire commodity as a percentage of GDP. And the bottom line is commercial loan growth, which is your, you know, your kind of internal money supply for the banking system, has started to roll over, but it's not anywhere close to offsetting the fiscal impulse of this government deficit. And so it's not, there aren't, conclusions are scarce right now when you go through a period like this. I think the best thing you can do is just be humble and and acknowledge that this is a different kind of environment that we've than we've seen in our lifetimes at least. Well, and I've been, uh, it's been a pleasure following all your work at 314. You've been helping us navigate these markets uh, quite well. So thank you for joining us here on Behind the Markets with Tess Shaw, head of macro commodities out of London, Warren Pye, 314 Research. Follow him on Twitter and look for him uh, anywhere you can find him. Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Natesh, Dion, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.